At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to Scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. In a February 2019 article in The Atlantic entitled, Workism is Making Americans Miserable, Derek Thompson documented the rise of what he referenced as a new type of religion that was emerging amongst us here in the West. He labeled it workism. He notes in early in the article that with the decline of traditional faith in America, people started to look for meaning and really for worship elsewhere. And he says that, quote, workism is among the most potent of new religions competing for congregants in our society. What is workism? This is his definition in the article. He says, it is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose, and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. If you want to translate kind of what uh, Derek Thompson boils down and calls workism, it's the idea that work is the key to the good life, the life of meaning and purpose and fulfillment, and that work is ultimately the key to a better world. This is kind of new, or sometimes I think it might just be the really old gospel of America, and it's taken root in our world for a long time. You see it in all sorts of places. In fact, in a New York Times article entitled, Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? Erin Griffith noted the new axioms of this gospel of workism. She describes early on in the article going into a WeWork location in New York City. If you don't know what WeWork is, it's like rentable, collaborative workspace that people can rent. And she went into this space and she saw all these taglines all over the place. She noted that the pillows had phrases like, do what you love. There were neon signs in it that said, hustle harder. And even the water cooler had reminders that said, don't stop when you're tired, stop when you're done. There's even a hashtag that emerged in recent years called TGIM, Thank God It's Monday. And over and over what we see is that people are starting to look for work, for their meaning, their identity, their sense of purpose and life, and that the key to life is really just more work or hustle harder. Even this past year and a half or so since we've gone through a global pandemic, although it slowed us down for a bit, it hasn't really changed anything. If anything, it just blurred the lines between work and home even more. It seems like we're all just a moment away from a Zoom call or a Teams meeting or somebody reaching out to us to give us more work or deal with something and even finding space from work seems to be a challenge. But for most Americans, they don't really seem to mind because we believe that work is the answer to a better life and a better world. But I think at some point we have to ask the question, is that the case? 
Does living a life centered on workism, focusing on material productions, ultimately satisfy? Is it really the good life? And does it really produce the better world that we all long for? Well, this search and this gospel of work isn't really anything new. In fact, it's an ancient struggle. And today we encounter someone who, like many people today, turned to consider the meaning of life in their work. So we're in the fifth week of the series that we've called Smoke and Mirrors. We've been following the progression of the preacher who decides at the beginning of the book to search for meaning in life under the sun, meaning apart from God. And he begins to look at various elements in life to find his ultimate meaning. So he first looked at nature, then he turned to his mind, then he turned to his desire. Last week we looked how he turned to his ambition. But now, here in the middle of the second chapter, he turns to his toil, to his work and his production. And yet, the preacher gives us the same pessimistic conclusion that he's given throughout these first two chapters. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. I don't know about you, but this dude is starting to become a real bummer to me. Like, bro, cheer up at some point. It seems like everything he looks at, he hates Life is miserable. It's all hevel. But he keeps looking for meaning, and he keeps coming up empty. And once again, we see why he gets so frustrated. I think the question that we can linger over this text, if we were to sum it up, is, why don't I ever feel like I have enough? Why doesn't it seem like the harder I work, the more I achieve, the more I get, doesn't feel like it ultimately satisfies. He's following off exploring his own individualism and ambition, but now he turns to what we might label workism. And remember, the preacher is a hard worker. This is Solomon at this point, the wisest king of Israel. He was industrious. He grew Israel to massive heights. He built the temple and he built a massive palace. He was smart, ingenuitive. And yet he reaches the point where he says, I hated all my toil, all the work I did, and what it produces. Similar to how he he hated life after considering ambition and achievement as his source of meaning, he now hates his work. And he really gives us three reasons for his hatred. The first two follow a similar structure in the text. You're going to see it. He offers a lament over his work. He offers a reason for his lament. He describes the successor of his work, and then he ultimately draws a conclusion. And then in the third one, he kind of gives us a different one. So let me unpack this. The first one you see in verse 18 and 19. He says, I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So he offers his lament. I hate my toil. Why? What's his reason? Because I must leave it to someone else. Someone else will ultimately control what I've acquired. He continues his theme and reference of how death is the great neutralizer. And he laments that someone else will take control of what he has earned and produced. And he doesn't know if this person will be a wise or a fool, right? That's what he says. Who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet, he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is hevel. Or vanity, that's the idea, it's the Hebrew word for smoke or wind. It's the idea that this is meaningless. If all that I produce in life ultimately goes to someone else, and I don't even know if that person's going to manage my stuff well, 
Man, that feels meaningless, doesn't it? Statistics tell us that in 60% of cases, inherited wealth in our society is completely gone by the second generation. And many of us feel, some of you that are older in this room, you feel the tension of that, that what I've earned will be left to someone else. What will they do with it? He ultimately draws the conclusion. It makes it feel like my work is meaningless. But in verse 20, he gives us his second reason. Again, he begins with the lament. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. So all my toil of my work apart from God, I I gave it up to despair. At this point, I'm like, somebody get this guy a Xanax for the love. But he gives a second reason in 21, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. You see, it's not just that someone else will take control of it, but someone else will get to enjoy who didn't earn what I earned. I did all the work. I achieved, I got, I acquired, and yet it will be left to someone else. And so he draws again the conclusion. This also is hevel and a great evil or the great injustice. Why should what I work for go to someone else who didn't earn it? And then he gives us his third reason in conclusion in 22. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. What do, you, what do you get from all the work that you do, all the striving, all the centering of your heart, pouring your life into your toil and work? Well, he says what you get. All your days are full of sorrow. Work is vexing. And not only that, even when you rest from your work, you really don't get to rest, that your mind is still going. You know what it's like to leave work and not have work leave you. And he essentially says, that's what you get. For all the toil, all the work, all that you do, it just feels more overbearing, not less freeing. Does this sound like the good life to you? Like, this is how we're lived? To the preacher, he says, no, this isn't the good life. Yet, this is what so much of life is sold to us in our world. Elon Musk, you guys know Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX. I remember coming across a tweet from him a little while back where he was encouraging people to join kind of his companies on Twitters. And at one point he says in his kind of tweet stream, he says, there are way easier places to work than the company he runs, but nobody ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. But if you love what you do, it mostly doesn't feel like work. You see, that's the snippet of the gospel that we get. Nobody changes the world. Life doesn't get better. You won't find meaning unless there's harder work, more given. I mean, does that sound like good news to you? In the article from the New York Times I referenced earlier, Aaron Griffin concludes, on some level you have to respect the hustlers who see a dismal system and understand that success in it requires total shameless buy-in. If we're doomed to toil away until we die, we may as well pretend to like it, even on Mondays. This is the gospel that we're preached, and we're buying it. We're buying it. 
In the U.S., 85% of males and 66% of females work more than 40 hours a week. Americans work 137 more hours per year than Japanese workers, 260 hours more than British workers, and 500 more hours than the French. The U.S. remains the only industrialized country in the world that has no legally mandated annual leave. And one study found that more than half of workers did not use all their vacation time in a given year. This is how we live. We've adopted a gospel that says, work harder, hustle harder, more, more. That's how you achieve the good life. That's how you get the life you want. That's how ultimately a better world is produced. But the preacher comes along and says, no. What it actually leaves you is exhausted, not able to rest, not ever able to enjoy truly what you are producing. Thompson concludes the same thing in his article on workism. At one point, he says this. He says, the problem with this gospel, that your dream job is out there, so never stop hustling, is that it's a blueprint for spiritual and physical exhaustion. Long hours don't make anybody more productive or creative. They make people stressed, tired, and bitter. And you know that. You know that the more we work often, does not actually produce the peace and rest and meaning that our world promises that it will. And we get caught in the cycle of it. I love one other conclusion that Thompson has in his article. He says, there's something slyly dystopian about an economic system that has convinced the most indebted generation in American history to put purpose over paycheck. Indeed, if you were designing a black mirror labor force that encouraged overwork without higher wages, what might you do? Perhaps you'd persuade educated young people that income comes second, that no job is just a job, and that the only real reward from work is the ineffable glow of purpose. It is a diabolical game that creates a prize so tantalizing yet rare that almost nobody wins, but everybody feels obligated to play forever. And we've raised up a generation of people who've bought into this, and they're exhausted they're tired. They're exactly what it describes. They're vexed. Their days are full of sorrow and not the deeper meaning and satisfaction that our hearts long for. We feel this internal pull. We're sold it all the time. I'm sitting on my couch last night watching a YouTube video and, um, oh, now I forget it, the social media company that starts with an N. I can't think of it now. The work, uh, not indeed. Anyway, Dang it, should have written it down. But I remember the ad, LinkedIn, that's it. LinkedIn pops up with an ad that's like, hey, you can't find your dream job? Figure out what you want to do and we'll help you find it. Like that ultimately work comes down to this glorious purpose that we're all working for. And if you can't find it, just keep changing, just keep seeking, just keep doing. And then once you achieve it, life will be all perfect. But it doesn't work out that way. It's a lie. It leaves us feeling like life is hevel. It's like smoke or wind you can't grasp. So what do we do? Right? How, how do we respond? If work as the meaning of life only leaves us exhausted and doesn't lead to a better life, 
Are we just supposed to sacrifice ourselves on the altar of work and progress? What if there's actually another way? And in kind of a rare positive moment in the book, I think the preacher shows it to us in verse 24. Look at it with me. He says, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil or his work. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So the preacher now turns to consider the reality of his search that he's been on all the way from chapter 1, and he draws a couple conclusions. Time and again in the book, he comes back, if you read through classes, these calls of contentment with life, and that meaning is ultimately found in life with God. And what we're reminded of time and time again is that God shares his spoils or his goodness with his people. That sometimes it's the simple things in life that God gives us that when lived in relationship to him, bring the good life, the sort of contentment and enjoy that we want. The first thing he reminds us of in this passage is that life and work is best enjoyed with God. Who can experience joy in their eating, their drinking, their toil apart from God? Answer, no one. The preacher's not trying to deny the joys of life. What he recognizes, though, is that what brings the ultimate joys in life, the good life, are the basic things that God provides and that are done with him. Work is a good thing. God actually designed work for us. If you go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, when God creates the world, God gives work in that place. Genesis 2.15 says the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That before sin entered the world, there was work. Work is positive. Work is good. Work just isn't meant to be God. God is meant to be the source of meaning. He's meant to be at the center of our work. And that's how we're meant to labor. Work cannot hold up as the entire source of our identity and meaning. It will lead us eventually to burn out. So enjoy your work. And there's parts of your work you might not enjoy because we live in a fallen world. It's not that we just have to live with joyless drudgery. The better question, though, is what is at the center of my work? What is my aim or desire in my work? Is it me? Is it my identity or is it God? Is it working for what he gives them? Because when we do that, we can enjoy the simple things of life. We can enjoy, like I did Friday night, just sitting on my back porch with friends after a long work week, just enjoying food and laughing and being reminded, yeah, this week was exhausting, but there was good stuff in it too. When you put God at the center of your work, you're able to enjoy the little things. You're able to take a break and say, I don't have to work 60 hours a week to make it. I don't have to be beholden to the rat race of America to get ahead. I can enjoy the good things of life too, like family and creation and food and drink. When work is done with God at the center, this is where the good life is found. And not only that, it also produces the sort of work that lasts eternally. 
that is not temporary and just given to another. You see him turn and kind of give this proverbial phrase in verse 26, where he says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, the one who's turned from God's ways, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. He essentially says to those that are pleasing to God, God gives good things. But to those that aren't, that turn away from God, man, they work and work and work, achieve, 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 and it's only handed to someone else. There's no eternal nature to the work in which they do. But the reminder ultimately is for us that when work is done with God, we can achieve things within our work that last eternally for his glory. Because the question you have to ask in verse 26 is, who's the one that ultimately pleases God? And the answer is, not any one of us. All of us have fallen short. All of us have sinned. There's only one who actually pleases him. I love Daniel and Jonathan Aiken's commentary on this verse. They said this about verse 26. They say, for this verse does not mean God likes good moral people and gives them nice things. The one who pleases God is not the religious person who tries to do the best he can. Ecclesiastes 12, what we'll look at next week, tells us it is the one who perfectly obeys God's commandments. The problem for every single one of us is we are sinners, and thus we displease God. Only one person in all of history has perfectly followed God's design and been told of God's pleasure, Jesus. For God said of him, this is my beloved son, I take delight in him. You see, the reminder is the only one who receives the ultimate reward at the end of all things is Jesus. He's the only one that pleases God. And it's only the work that's ultimately done for Jesus and for his glory that lasts forever. This is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, which is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, lays out this whole reality of the gospel, that Jesus came, died for our sins, and rose again, and then unpacks the reality of the resurrection, that Jesus actually rose from the dead, and because he rose from the dead, he's overcome Satan's sin and death, and he's bringing God's new world, God's new creation, to bear both partially and present, to be consummated in his return. Paul lays this out in incredible detail. I encourage you to just take time and read it. 1 Corinthians 15. But I love his conclusion at the end because this is what he says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, your work, your toil is not in vain. It's not meaningless. When we work for God, When we do what he's called us to do, we get to be involved in God's eternal plan for the world. God gives to us so that we can participate in his work in the world. God is generous, and we must be the sort of people that work from God's generosity, not for God's generosity to recognize what he's given and then to work well in response. And this includes how you work. Don't just translate the call to work for the Lord. That means it's just what you do at church. It's just ministry. It's just the pastors that really do the work. No, that's all of life. All of life and good work that produces good things for the glory of God. 
are brought to bear in the way God is working in the world. Your work matters. I remember um, several years ago, I got the chance to travel to, to India. And on that trip, there was uh, a man. We had gone together. We were teaching uh, uh, pastors that pastored small churches in the villages of India. And uh, the guy who was with me, there was a, a number of the team, but one of the guys who was teaching with me, his name was Richard. And Richard, uh, he worked uh, in, at, for Goodyear for a long time in Akron, where I'm from, Goodyear, you know, the blimp. Um, he worked as a chemist for Goodyear for, for many years. And while we were on the trip, uh, Richard shared a little bit about how he had worked for Goodyear for about, I think it was like 20 or 25 years, and then all of a sudden he had a major crisis of faith. Like he just had this moment where as he was wrestling with his faith, he was a Christian and what God was doing, he just kind of reached a point where he had felt just kind of like the preacher, like, have I just been wasting the last 20 or 25 years of my life as a chemist? Like, should I, should I have done more? Should I have gone into ministry? Should I have done more teaching? Should I have done, and it led him to have this whole kind of like, what am I supposed to do? And so he was telling me about this, and he said, so it just, it took him into a deep dive into the scriptures to see what's God's vision and plan for work. And as he did, he started to realize God created work. He, he created good work for us to do that produces good things in the world. That he's given us skills and talents and all these sorts of things that were brought to bear to develop goodness in the world. That that's God's design. That he sets Adam and Eve in the garden and that ultimately he wants them to take the goodness of God and spread it across the earth. Now we fail, so God works then to bring Jesus into the picture, who's the perfect human, who redeems. But don't forget, Jesus worked probably 25 years as a carpenter or a stonemason, depends on how you want to understand the word. But for 25 years, just as a laborer, that's what he did. Before he ever preached, before he ever got up to start sharing in his ministry, he just worked and brought goodness to the earth. And then he said, I realized that at the end, in new creation, God doesn't remove work. That work is still the way in which we glorify God. And I'll never forget, we were sitting, and he looked at me real carefully. He got real somber in a moment, and he looked at me right in the eyes, and he said, Jacob, Whatever you do, teach your people that work matters. That it matters. And that story's always stuck with me. Because I think sometimes we can go to two extremes. We go to the extreme that tells us at the end of the day, work is God. And I've got to serve that God. I've got to hustle harder, do more, achieve, get, get, get. That that's where meaning ultimately is found. And that's a lie we have to reject. But I think sometimes we go to the other extreme where we think, well, it's only the ministry that matters. That there isn't inherent goodness in work. But that's a lie too. If God is redeeming all things, he's redeeming our work. He's bringing what we do, the skills he's given you, the job he's given you, he's bringing that into his redemptive purpose. And your work matters. It matters. That's why earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And I wonder if maybe for a moment Paul's reflecting back on Ecclesiastes and that reminder that sometimes eating and drinking and work when done for God, that's where the good life is found. That's where meaning ultimately is found. You see, when we work for the glory, glory of ourselves, 
when we make work our God, at some point you will reach a point that you say, life is hevel. But when you work for God's glory, when you take the skills that God has brought, you put your faith in Jesus and you work for his glory on the earth, in your job, maybe as a chemist or a salesman or whatever you do, God will take that and he will use it in his eternal purposes. You won't feel like life is meaningless. You'll feel like it's so full of meaning and that it really is the good life, not just for now, but for all of eternity. So put your faith in Jesus. Work for his glory. And may God bless you with a good life. Let me pray for us. God, we recognize, even as we've talked about it this morning, we live and exist in a world that sells us a false gospel. That tells us time and time again that the harder we work, the more we work, that really what we do is where our identity is found. And yet so often, when we're honest with ourselves, we're left exhausted by that call. yet the invitation from you, Jesus, is to cease from that. It was you who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's you who invites us not to find our identity and our meaning in what we do, but in just being with you, just knowing you and trusting you. You are the source of life and meaning. So God, I pray this morning that you would help us, all of us, to reject the lie of our culture, to find our identity in what we do, and instead continue to raise up within us a deep trust that our identity, our meaning, our purpose is just found in being with you, working for your glory, not our own working from rest and generosity, not for it. Even now, as we prepare to sing, would you come and minister to our hearts that call to make you the king of our lives, to make you the focus, the place we run, to put you continually back at the center of our work and our life. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to move now as we respond to your word. We love you all these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.